Welcome to Dunzo. This is a podcast that explores hookups and breakups of famous lovers and friends, both real and fake, and all the discarded pop culture of yesteryear. I'm your host, Troy McKeady. Hello, me amores. It is me, Troy McEady, and this is episode 145 of Dunzo, aka the Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown podcast. This is a podcast for Whitney Houston, about Whitney Houston, sponsored by Whitney Houston. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about this week's episode, but I'm also kind of sad because we're entering the like waiting to exhale period of Whitney's life, which is like in many ways the beginning of the end. Like this is sort of um in the way that I always describe in the zone as being because of, as as you know, Whitney Houston and Britney Spears have the exact same life from beginning to end. You know, I always say in the zone is like the last years that we're able to kind of celebrate Britney Spears being the Britney Spears that we grew up with and that we knew for however long. Waiting to exhale period for Whitney Houston is that. Like, it's the last time that we're able to sort of look at Whitney Houston as this person who is still associated with that good, sweet, beautiful girl that came from Newark. And of course, you look at Whitney throughout the entirety of her life and think that because it's literally who she is. But things just change. Like, after waiting to exhale, things just really take a dark turn that is so it's so dark that there was no like real way of coming back from it she's never really been able to you know she was never able to kind of uh change the narrative after waiting to exhale it it really was the nail in her coffin and it's sad because it should have been you know it should have been this incredible period for her you know she was achieving things again as she I guess was just used to doing She was achieving all these unprecedented things and waiting to exhale was such a massive, massive success. And we're going to talk a lot about it today, but it's just sad because it should have been this really important, powerful, amazing period in her life. And really it was like, like I said, it was the beginning of the end. And I can't stop thinking about how crazy it is that Whitney Houston is like, literally since she was a teenager, all she's ever known is being like record breaking. Like, imagine being so used to breaking world records with your talent that it's like old, it's like old trick to you. What's the saying? Old hat? Is that it? It's old hat. It's just old news. It's like, yes, I know I broke another Guinness record. I I was in the most successful soundtrack of all time. I changed film forever with this uh, movie that I did. I am the first to do all the things I've ever done since I was a teenager. And you get so used to it because you're so fucking talented that it's just sort of all you ever know. I really want to enjoy the things that are good about this time and really lean into the good things about this time period. Because like I said, it's sort of the end and it's just, it's just a lot of really dark sadness from this point on and it's already getting so sad, and this is actually kind of a sad episode, if I'm being honest with you. It ends on a really, really dark note, and it's just like, I don't know. I'm too in it. You know what I mean? I'm too in it. It's hard for me to separate myself. You guys listen to this, and then you put it down, and then you're done with it for a week, whereas I do it. 
and then spend the whole week in it and then release it. And then I never separate myself from it. So as you can imagine, I'm becoming emotionally attached to Whitney Houston in a way that actually is bodyguard level. Like it actually life is legitimately imitating art at this moment because I'm like maybe two or three sentences away from completing a full on like bodyguard style letter to Whitney Houston herself, who I can't even receive it, but it doesn't matter to me. I, I, I'm just, I'm in a really, really, I'm in a K hole. I'm in, I'm in a W hole. I'm in a Whitney hole. It's happening. As I'm sure you can assume, we are talking today about, um, how would you put this? We're talking about Whitney and Bobby's transition from people who sort of dabble here and there and a little cocaine you know what I mean, in a good time, to a full-on, like, drug addiction, these are now drug addicts who are no longer able to really function in their everyday lives without drugs, it's officially a problem that can't be ignored, but somehow ends up being fully ignored, I spent a lot of time talking about Whitney's career last week, so I do want to spend some time this week catching up on what Bobby's been doing musically, Believe it or not, Bobby Brown had some moderately successful releases after his Legacy album. Actually, I won't even say moderately. They were just fully successful. Um, They obviously pale in comparison to Whitney's Bodyguard era, but I do think they're uh, they're worth mentioning. Speaking of, I also really want to talk about the shift in their power dynamic and how it affected their relationship up until Whitney's death, because... 80s Whitney and Bobby versus 90s Whitney and Bobby is a whole different fucking mood. Obviously, we'll talk. As previously mentioned, 95 era Whitney is both really sad, but also super fun to talk about because she's reached this very sort of like grown woman era of her career and of her life. And to me, this is where you see Whitney really starting to not take shit from anyone when it comes to how she's spoken to in interviews and spoken about in tabloids. She really has absolutely no time and no problem letting you know when you've disrespected her or gone too far with your questioning about her personal life. And it's weirdly inspiring to see, given how restricted she had been since we were introduced to her. And part of that is because she's literally strung out. She's fucking strung out. So you're seeing this really irritable side of her personality that she's had to white knuckle it to hide for years. So those interviews, in my opinion, they just hit different. Like those 95, 96 era, you know, Barbara Walters 2020 style interviews where it's like, you know, an hour with Whitney Houston in her home situation. Like they just hit different when you know what's going on in her life. I also mentioned before that this is the last era of, in quotes, polished Whitney, if you will. The late 90s slash early 2000s is where we see Whitney completely just sort of succumb to her demons and the pressures of the world and this world that her parents and Clive Davis created for her and sort of placed her in that she's never really been able to manage in a healthy way since she was a teenager And now she's an adult dragging all these demons with her. And it's just, it's really sad to watch. But later on, that's the, you know, that's the Diane Sawyer crack is whack, like calling into Wendy Williams radio show and reading Wendy into a shallow grave era, Whitney. 
which we all love, obviously, because it shows clear signs of being iconic. Um, but in 1995, she's starting to sort of toe the line. And because she's not a 17-year-old girl anymore, she's just generally fucking over everyone's bullshit. And you can just tell. This is also a married woman who is just given birth to a child. She's a three-year-old. So it's like, you know, she's a little bit less likely to uh, to smile and giggle and, you know, nod through an interview where she's being told she's not black enough by some old white guy. We're now a few years into the bodyguard making her one of the most famous people to ever exist. Her marriage is under some of the, probably the worst public scrutiny of any Hollywood couple ever. Like, I can't really think of anybody who, from the moment they got together to the moment they divorced and after, got it as bad as Whitney and Bobby when you consider how long they were together. You know, there are couples that have had terrible relationships with the press, but Whitney and Bobby were together for a very long time. It took Whitney a long time to admit to herself that she had failed, in quotes, in her marriage, because that's how she looked at it. Divorce is failure. You know, it's turning her back on God and all that stuff. So it took her whole, basically her entire life to allow herself to move on from Bobby Brown. They were together for a long fucking time. And she's married to a man that the world views as a crackhead. Like, really take that in. (laughs) It's one thing for people to know you're an alcoholic or that you are addicted to pills. That's one thing. It's another for the media to casually talk about you as a crackhead. Like, Bobby Brown has been called a crackhead so many times that when you Google Bobby Brown crackhead, I mean, the search is just, I mean, it's like an infinite number of articles and videos and interviews and just, I mean, Bobby Brown will forever be known to the public, not as like this iconic recording artist or any of those things. He will forever be known as a former crackhead, and that's it. That's how often it was written about. You know what I mean? You can't just like quickly recover from people speculating that you're a celebrity who smokes crack. And let's also not forget that it's now been nearly a decade of the media thinking you have some sort of weird hang up with being black. So she's also dealing with that still because of some shit that fucking Clive Davis got her into when she was a child. So now you have to do all these marketing things and you know, there are marketing strategies surrounding you being able to switch the way you present yourself to the public because we now need that good, good radio airplay from the black audience. Now, as promised, I want to talk about Bobby Brown for a little bit. I want to talk about what the bad boy of R&B has been doing since his wife decided to break a Guinness record uh, with her first little dabble into acting. Um... She's not the only actor in the family, first and foremost. Let's just start there. Bobby Brown had a cameo in Ghostbusters 2 in the late 80s. He actually appeared on the soundtrack, and his single from the movie, I think it made it to, like, number two on Billboard. He also released... This is one of my favorite things in the entire world. So, Bobby released a remixes album called Dance. You know it. 
And I'm mentioning it specifically to make fun of the name, obviously. <laughs> Have you ever heard anything more late 80s than the release of a remixes cassette tape called Dance? You know it. And just know that there are, of course, two exclamation points. There's a few dots. And all of the punctuation is exactly where you think it would be. It's amazing. Bobby Brown has an album called Dance, You Know It. And that's the that's episode 145 of Dunzo. I hope that you enjoyed it. I'm also mentioning this because the album was extremely successful in the UK. And because of that, it helped Bobby become one of those celebrities who remained really famous in other parts of the world when his star started to dim in the states he went on a really successful world tour with new edition opening up for him which was their first of many iconic reunions and while on tour bobby and a woman named quailene young (laughs) were cited by the police in augusta georgia for simulating sex on stage in front of an underage audience but weren't taken into custody apparently And this is like, I mean, I guess this is just like a thing that happened in the 80s and 90s, because of course, the only thing I think of is Madonna in her Truth or Dare documentary. I want to say it was during Like a Virgin, right? It couldn't have been lived to tell. I think it was Like a Virgin, where she simulates masturbating on the bed, and then she takes the microphone and like jams it into her vagina. Basically, Bobby and this girl, they had a bed on stage, And he pretended to fuck her on stage and the audience was full of kids. So they were, the cops were like, we're going to put you in jail because you're a pervert. In 1992, he released a self-titled album. By the way, can I just tell you really quickly, can you tell the difference in my personality now that I have a cough drop in my mouth? How fucked up is it that a cough drop raises my mood so much because I love, I love the, the feeling of menthol opening up my fucking nasal passages so much. That I literally, I feel like I can breathe again. I feel whole again. I'm ready to record this now. I actually feel like I should start over, but I won't. Anyway, in 1992, he released his self-titled album called Bobby, which was his follow-up to Don't Be Cruel. And this album is actually pretty interesting because it sort of symbolizes the end of New Jack Swing being super popular and it's ironic considering Bobby was responsible for being the one you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that he was the one. I said that last week too by accident. He wasn't the one. There was Janet Jackson. There were other people. But Bobby was like one of the one of the first people to make New Jack Swing super popular. And, you know, this album sort of represents the closing of that chapter just in media of that being a popular style of music. And this is the album that I talked about last week where I said that they threw a party for like a release, a single release party. And his single, Humpin' Around, just played on repeat for hours and hours while people got drunk and ate, like, gourmet-flavored popcorns. The album won Bobby his second Grammy for Best Male R&B Performance and an American Music Award. And maybe I keep mentioning Bobby's accolades because my brain can't process them. As I mentioned, you know, I grew up in the 90s. I was born in the late 80s. I have no personal recollection of Bobby being a sex symbol or like the successful 
you know, sexy artists that people swooned after. I only know crackhead era Bobby Brown. So it's like, my brain can't accept that Bobby Brown not only won two Grammys in a row, but like, I don't know, he, he, like, he won the Grammy for Best Male R&B Artist, like, he won the biggest awards of the night consistently, he also won an American Music Award for, like, Best Artist or something, I don't fucking know, Best Album, something big, he, and he also hosted an award show, Bobby Brown was asked to host an award show, I believe it was the American Music Awards, can you imagine, can you imagine a world where somebody's, like, we need somebody to host. Now, who's hot right now? We could ask Bobby Brown. <laughs> Maybe Bobby Brown would make a good host. Maybe he'd be good reading a teleprompter. Now, something very important happened during this time. Bobby Brown took a break from music. And he told the press that he was taking a moment to focus on being a husband and a father, which makes sense in theory. But the real reason that Bobby Brown took a break from the music industry, in my opinion, just based on what I've seen and read, is because he had reached a breaking point of being compared to his wife as her lesser half. Bobby and Whitney both received this, like, unimaginable amount of bad press for being together, obviously. But for Whitney, at least the narrative was in her favor, you know what I mean? Again, of course, much like Britney, when she first started dating K-Fed very publicly, to the public and the media, it was, you know, if we could just get Whitney away from this guy, everything will be fine. If we can get her to divorce him, everything will be fine. He's the thing that's wrong in her life. She's too important as a cultural figure and an icon to let this crackhead undo everything that she's worked for. So if we can just tear them apart if we can just uh i don't know convince whitney that he's such a piece of shit that she can do better maybe she'll leave him you know i think it was a little bit of that like parenting that america having a paternal relationship to whitney thing happening where they were like we need to convince her that this guy is bad for her whereas i think all of that negative press and negative attention did nothing but bring them closer together, and Whitney leaned in to her marriage. Whereas Bobby, on the other hand, had become Mr. Houston, which he hated. And I keep mentioning all these documentaries, and like, to be honest with you, when I went back and listened to last week's episode, I actually aged a year every time I said in the documentary I watched. It's like, bitch, we get it. You have fucking Hulu. <laughs> that was so annoying. Get over yourself. But... In the, 20 do- <laughs> in the 2018 documentary that I launched, her brother brings up the fact that Bobby had, you know, he become obviously super, super jealous of Whitney and her career and all the stuff that she was able to accomplish. And he had become so jealous that it actually started to eat away at him. Like it really, really, really started to affect his mental state, his psyche, his relationship to the public, his relationship to Bobby Christina Everything in his life shifted in a negative way because of how jealous he was of the fame that Whitney was getting. He would get angry at people when they referred to Whitney as Mrs. Houston. And in interviews, he would correct them and sort of berate them until they referred to her as Mrs. Brown. 
Which, like, who the fuck is going to call Whitney Houston Whitney Houston Brown? Literally nobody. Nobody in the history of Whitney Houston being a living, breathing person referred to her as Mrs. Brown willingly. If they did, it was because Bobby had his hand around their throat during an interview. And it was at this point that Whitney Houston very publicly sort of stepped down and became her husband's, like, rib or whatever it says in the Bible. His rib or rib cage or whatever. However Alexis Bellino puts it, I don't, I don't quite remember the scripture, um, but you know what I mean. She took a back seat in an attempt to make her husband feel taller than 5'3". And nothing she did ever made Bobby feel adequate enough to be nice to her really like he was mean to her and he bullied her and was emotionally and physically abusive to her for the remainder of their relationship because he could he couldn't get past this and that's something that we're going to talk about pretty extensively coming up but I want to switch over to something positive for a little bit because there are highs and lows to Whitney's life during this time I suppose there are highs and lows to Whitney's life up until the moment she died like It isn't all diamonds and rosé. It should be, but it's not. Um, But there are those diamonds and rosé moments. There are happy moments. And waiting to exhale is without a doubt a happy moment. In 1995, Whitney starred in a motion picture that has truly stood the test of time and is without question one of my favorite movies. It is one of the most iconic movies of all time waiting to exhale waiting to exhale is a movie based on a novel about four 30 something black women who i guess you could say they they all have everything figured out except for relationships and it's basically about them sort of navigating their friendships and like sharing their relationship trials with each other and it's just it's just so fucking good It is, without question, one of the most important movies to be released in the 90s because the success of this movie led to this wave of well-written, well-acted Black films made by Black people starring Black actors for a Black audience. And this wasn't released as a niche film. This wasn't released as a film in quotes. It was released as a regular movie that targeted middle American, middle-class black people who, to be honest, up to this point had never really been marketed to. I read a bunch of the reviews. Whenever I do episodes that involve movies, I always read reviews from the period that the movie came out, usually reviews by like Siskel and Ebert because it's the 90s. It's usually the 90s or the 80s or the early 2000s that I'm talking about. And the LA Times wrote this review in 1995 that said, uh, part entertainment, part social phenomenon, 20th Century Fox's Waiting to Exhale has taken in a whopping 45 million in 17 days, landing on top, landing on top during the ultra competitive Christmas weekend. Side note, this movie came out during the same time as fucking Toy Story. Like the movies that were out in 95 during the holiday weekend were major. So the fact that Waiting to Exhale doesn't get talked about a lot as a, really successful film of the 90s is insane to me um the 15 million dollar uh movie a tale of four black women wrestling with life and love slipped to fifth place last week 
but industry observers point out that the picture continues to build in suburban theaters, catering predominantly to whites, and African-American women are still turning out in droves. Traditionally, we've considered the African-American audience young and male, said a leading independent film executive. The movie tells us that the demographics are more diverse and interesting than that. Since Hollywood is always on the lookout for new markets, Exhale may be the bellwether for a broader mix. The response to Exhale shows that Hollywood has done an abysmal job of depicting African Americans serving up primarily crime-related portrayals in all but ignored the middle class. He says, but it's a mistake to target a niche and start turning out movies in a cynical, manufactured way. It all starts with the material. The movie shows that when it's fresh and original, African Americans will turn out. And, like, it's just hilarious, but also really fucking frustrating to, A, read articles like this where they're, like, studies show that if if you give black people good movies, they'll go see good movies. It's like, does it take a fucking scientist to figure that out? If you put movies in theaters that are well-acted and well-written and well-directed for a group of people that don't feel represented, they will go see the movie. It's not that hard. Also, it's crazy because this article is from 1995 and it sounds like it was written two days ago. Like, this sounds like it was written this week. It's insane. Also, as a side note, and this is me talking, not the LA Times, let's just take a moment to revisit some of the, what would be considered some of the most iconic black films of the 90s pre-Waiting to Exhale. All amazing films, but of course you'll notice a theme in movies like Friday and Boys in the Hood and Juice and Menace to Society and New Jack City. They're all crime movies. They are all crime movies or they're movies that like portray what it's like to live in the projects even though there are millions of black people that live in suburban neighborhoods. They were never portrayed on TV during this time. And of course you have movies like What's Love Got to Do With It? And, you know, there are black movies, that have the, of course, of the 90s that don't have anything to do with crime. You have movies like House Party and, you know. But there are no lies detected when they say most black films to come out of this time period are crime or like gang movies. This article goes on to say that Hollywood is dominated by well-intentioned white liberals who share a mistrust that the black middle class will show up. The industry was taken aback by the I'm black and proud response to this movie. When blacks leave the neighborhood, they head for Sabrina, not exhale. The reasoning goes, if the black underclass wants to see Wesley Snipes with a gun, the black middle class wants to be white. Simply put, this is amazing, says a studio chief, the black community just wants to see the same kinds of movies that white communities do. Like, hi. Um, it's really not that fucking hard. Like, this is crazy. All of these studies, and, and I know that the black audience isn't the only audience that they do this with. Of course, they do this with everybody. Um, but it's also why representation is so important in movies. The other day, I was listening to Princess Jones Curtis on Cara Berry's podcast, Everyone's Business But Mine, and they were talking about Insecure. And they were talking about how, you know, it's like the little things in Insecure that make it feel authentic. Things like 
Issa, you know, walking around her house with a headscarf on because she, you know, had just woken up and black women sleep with a headscarf on and she woke up the next day to do self-care and she cleaned her house and she cleaned her house in, you know, like sleepy clothes and slippers with socks and a headscarf. And that just felt very authentic and real. And it wasn't something that the plot needed to revolve around. It was just a little thing that a black woman who's writing a show and directing it would add to the script because it's what black women do. And if a white guy was writing that scene, something just as simple as her cleaning her apartment would look completely different because it just would. It's really not... Is it so hard to, like, I don't, what's so difficult about it? It, it, I can't wrap my head around what is so hard to understand. Why has it taken us 30 years to understand that people, I, I'm not even going to get any, I'm not going to get any deeper into it because I'll just, I'll spiral, but you get what I'm trying to say. The end of the article says the real lesson of Exhale is that African-American audiences are looking for mainstream films such as Terms of Endearment, but with a black Deborah Winger. I look forward to the day when casting is colorblind, but until then, we'll be seeing more middle of the road films with blacks in the leads. And 20 years later, in 2015, the LA Times revisited Waiting to Exhale and its impact on what would be considered the like a golden age of black cinema. And it was because of this movie. It said, uh, when Waiting to Exhale opened two decades ago this holiday season, the movie not only became a breakout success, but also touched a cultural nerve with an underserved audience. Waiting to Exhale was important 20 years ago because it gave black women a voice and brought attention to their ideas on love and marriage. Actress Loretta Devine said in an email interview, Divine played Gloria, a beautician in the film, and she said, Now, like then, women want the world to know what women want. Beloved by audiences who made it into a true word-of-mouth success, not to mention the subject of countless water cooler discussions, Waiting to Exhale demonstrated how potent a force women could be at the box office. It led to a new generation of movies that explored similar themes with ethnic casts such as How Stella Got Her Groove Back and The Best Man. I'm also adding soul food to the mentions because it's one of the best films of the 90s. And I just feel like if we're going to talk about the golden age of black films in the 90s, like we have to talk about soul food. It's also one of those things that I have to remind myself is only iconic to other black people. (laughs) Because most of my white friends that I bring that movie up to have either never heard of it, never seen it, or like laugh at the mention of it like it's like a joke (laughs) whereas for black families soul food was like I mean I again I grew up in the 90s I was very I think I was in kindergarten or maybe first or second grade when soul food came out and I remember that being one of the first well you guys know that like I was raised in a situation where I was able to just watch whatever the fuck I wanted most of the time But I do remember Soul Food being one of those movies that for, like, young black kids, it was a good, like, introduction to adult themes kind of film. Because it is, in quotes, a family film, but it has a lot of adult shit going on that you maybe don't fully understand as a kid. But it helps you understand the dynamics of your family more, because the the movie just portrays a black family in such an authentic way 
it is it's like pokes at nerves that are like almost like too it's like too vulnerable you know what I mean but it's so good and it has nothing to do with what we're talking about but it's just a movie that I feel like needs to be mentioned if we're gonna talk about this shit I don't know let's also not forget about the fact that Babyface did all of the music for this movie not for soul food for waiting to exhale um including the score and the soundtrack sat at the top of the billboard charts for like five consecutive weeks and it won whitney another grammy for the theme song exhale shoop shoop one of whitney's best songs if you ask me uh shoop a day do uh uh live and not to bring down the party too much i told you it's highs and lows ebbs and flows ups and downs happy and sad this whole fucking uh, series is going to be that. Um, you also have to remind yourself during this time that Whitney has gone, again, from doing little bumps of cocaine with her brothers and, you know, just kind of trying to stay awake and stay lively during a show. She has now fallen very deep into a horrendous depression where she actually admitted to rotating the same handful of clothes and not leaving her home for seven months she locked herself in her mansion for seven months and just smoked coke laced weed all day long she was also having these very public mishaps for the first time where she was showing up to things like the white house state dinner two hours late while there's people sitting there waiting for her to show up and sing and Whitney actually overdosed while recording the soundtrack for Waiting to Exhale, which was somehow shielded from the press. I don't remember, I don't remember until the documentary ever knowing that Whitney OD'd during Waiting to Exhale. And it's crazy because they did such a good job. I guess this is all sort of like in hindsight, but they did such a good job of presenting Whitney in a certain way during this time, you know, sort of pushing her out there, like probing her out on stage and having her be that good girl with the the beautiful smile and the doe eyes that people, I don't think were really fully grasping just how much of a drug addict Whitney was. Whitney's real life bodyguard, David Roberts, who ended up kind of being the breakout star of her 2018 documentary, because he gave some of the most damning, I mean, truly just inexcusable information about how, you know, she overdosed and he, you know, filed several reports to, in quotes, the family members who were in charge of the business of Whitney Houston, in quote. You know, she had this disastrous show in Singapore where she wasn't able to perform because her voice was so shot from smoking and drinking so much liquor. He ended up naming all of the people that he considered to be enablers of her addiction. And he wrote about, you know, the times that he had to physically threaten people because this means, I mean, this is a man who very clearly states like every single day of my life, I was willing to die for Whitney Houston. I was willing to give up my life. I was a truly like an authentically trained bodyguard who was like, I'm hired to possibly die for this woman so he lived in that all the time and uh yeah he was like either i'm gonna die for her or i'm gonna kill somebody 
protecting her. You know what I mean? But he was adamant on not letting her die when it felt like everybody around her was just so chill with it. Like, everybody around her just seemed so comfortable allowing her to die. In one of the reports, he talks about being, um, or he talks about everybody in her crew being so fucked up that he watched them pour alcohol on, like, a hotel bed. I want to say it was in a hotel. And one of them lit the bed on fire while it was soaked in alcohol. And mind you, this is a woman who has a child. Like, there is a child around who's, like, watching all of this happen. Because that's the other thing that they mention a lot. Before I go even any further with, like, the the reports or whatever. They talk a lot about how Bobby Christina was not shielded from any of this stuff at all. And the bodyguard is one of the first people to admit that he did, in fact, watch Whitney and Bobby smoke crack and, like, blow fucking crack clouds into the air with Bobby Christina in the room. She watched her parents smoke crack for so long that it became very normal to her. And not to, like, literally skip ahead to the end of Whitney's life, but it's, like, you know, to think that they had gotten to a point where Bobby Christina was, like, her using buddy. Like, Whitney and Bobby Christina were, like, best girlfriends that were just, like, using drugs together is just, like, it. it's, like, gut-wrenching. Like, it literally makes my stomach churn. Anyway, he wrote about the long-term effects that it had on her voice, which is also very apparent when you watch any performance of Whitney's in 1995. Obviously, her voice is still otherworldly, but you can hear a really clear difference in Whitney's singing ability. There's a rasp and like a deepness to her voice that wasn't there before, and that sort of effortlessness of Whitney Houston as like a teenager or like a young girl just fucking belting out a song, it wasn't there. And I know that that sounds insane because we're literally talking basically about bodyguard era Whitney Houston. And I, I trust me, I'm not saying that Whitney Houston couldn't sing during the bodyguard. I'm not an animal. I'm not a, I'm not a monster. I'm saying that live Whitney Houston's voice changed during this time you can hear it change from the bodyguard to waiting to exhale within a couple years of each other it's different there's this like effortlessness like I said to Whitney performing as a young girl where it's like she's literally just opening her mouth and all of this insanity is coming out she's not really trying and she sings really really hard like hard from her gut, you know, but she's not trying, if that makes sense. I don't know. She's just using her body like an instrument. Whereas later, like even if you YouTube like her performance of I Will Always Love You, um, where she's like wearing a turban, it's like she's wearing this like yellow turban and this yellow velvet dress. And I want to say it's like maybe a year or so after the song came out. You can hear in her voice that she has to try to sing. And I've always thought, you know, I think most people consider the later years of Whitney's life when her voice gave out. I think even more specifically, like the early 2000s, sort of mid 2000s, 
very thin, skinny, in quotes, like cracked out, end quote, Whitney, you know, the Whitney Houston who had to be digitally edited um, during Michael Jackson's uh, anniversary concert or whatever because she was so thin that they felt uncomfortable airing it and the way she looked. Um, I think people equate that time to Whitney's voice being gone, but I think it was just so much more noticeable then. Whereas like during, I'm just going to stop because I could actually do this for three hours, but you know what I mean? Her bodyguard did confirm that a doctor had checked her voice and found these growths. I think they're called nodules. (laughs) They're not, it's fine. These growths on her throat, um, that would cause permanent, permanent damage due to drug use and partying. And he also reported that during her world tour, people in her circle were smuggling drugs in their genitals to get them from country to country. And he was immediately fired for trying to get help for her. They sent him a letter after he turned in his reports that said, you know, Whitney Houston will no longer be needing your services during this tour. You know, if we need you again, thank you for everything you've done, but we will contact you, you know, in the future if we're looking for your type of service again. And of course, he was never hired again. And of course, he says that, you know, had somebody listened to him, had somebody, you know, took his reports seriously, um, then she would likely be alive because this was this was the moment like you you guys know I love finding like that moment there's so many moments but I love finding that one definitive moment where it's like this is the do or die you know there's before this moment and there's after at this point she's showing very clear signs of spiraling she's already spiraled but she's still coherent enough that you can have a full-blown conversation with her about why this is bad and why she shouldn't be doing it. She's still, there's still like a glimmer of her being Whitney Houston, you know, of being the girl that we've always known and that we grew up with. She's still there. One of the other things I found really interesting in doing research is that according to, I want to say it was Whitney's hairstylist. I've listened to so many people in Whitney Houston's life talk about her at this point that they're all running together. But somebody in her circle had mentioned that when Whitney and Bobby got together, they essentially combined their addictions when they met, right? Whitney was always really, really, really into drugs. That was her thing. She wasn't a drinker. Whitney wasn't like a person who would just like drink liquor. She liked to be on drugs. She liked to be on amphetamines. She liked to be up in Adam George McFadden to quote Bunny McDougal from Sex in the City. Um, <laughs> whereas Bobby liked to drink. Bobby was an alcoholic. He loved liquor. He loved to drink straight liquor. He loved to drink from the bottle. Bobby loved to drink. So then they got together and like Captain Planet, combined their addictions. So now they're both drug addicts who love to drink. And Bobby's, um, or Whitney's brother actually said that Bobby, when it came to drug use, was a huge lightweight. And the irony that everybody calls Bobby Brown a crackhead, you know, but like he actually was really, really bad at doing drugs. Like he couldn't 
he couldn't hang. And her brother said that, you know, they, including Whitney, would party him in circles. Like, they would, you know, he would do, like, one bump of coke and be, like, a pinball. Because Bobby was already fucking manic, you know? He already was, like, fucking bouncing off the walls. Whereas Whitney and her brothers could do coke all night long until the next day. They could not sleep. And they would just party circles around Bobby. I don't know. I just found that to be really ironic that this guy that's been called a crackhead for 30 years uh, can like barely stomach drugs. It's also super weird because when you see her brothers talk about. This is the sick thing. When you see her brothers talk about Whitney's drug use. When they reminisce about like the times that they use together. There's this sort of like twinkle in their eye where you can tell that they still, even though she's dead and even though they know drugs killed her, there's still this sort of like nostalgia around the fun memories they had while they were fucked up together. So even while her brother was saying, oh, you know, Bobby couldn't hang, like he couldn't, you know, we could party Bobby under the table and, you know, Whitney could party for days and Bobby couldn't hang. Like, he's saying it as if they're talking about, like, a frat party. Like, it's not fucking crack that they're talking about. Whitney has also always been described as a very insecure person. And I think fame is so weird in the way that it can, like, condition you to get used to people. You know, you can get used to millions and millions of people screaming your name and, like, fainting for you or whatever. But you're able to see through all of that in a way other people can't who aren't in your position or weren't raised in the weird way that you were raised, where you can look at all that stuff and realize how vapid it is. And Bobby was also a very insecure person. So he would do things to purposely bring Whitney down to what he thought was his level to sort of make them equal, not only in their relationship, but publicly. You know, he would tell her things like, you're getting old, people aren't as interested in you as they used to be, you're not as pretty as you were when you first started. Whitney had very thin hair, which is why she always wore wigs, and her hair wouldn't grow, and her nails wouldn't grow, and he would make fun of the fact that she had to wear wigs, and he would call her baldy. Like, I read this article about all of the weird, like, abusive shit that he would say to her in front of people, and he would call her baldy because she had thin hair under her wigs, which was like her biggest insecurity. Um, He would make fun of her body, especially when she started losing weight. He would talk about it and be like, you know, you look like a crackhead. Like you look skinny. At least I don't look like a crackhead the way you do. Um, He would point out that her voice was damaged so much that people wouldn't want to hear her sing anymore. Like he would really, really like stab the knife and twist it. It was also pretty common knowledge that he was sleeping with every fucking woman on that tour, on all of her tours. So every dancer, every backup singer, any woman working under Whitney Houston who wasn't, you know, somebody she was actually close to. And he would very publicly, you know, have these affairs with people and cheat on her because he liked the way it tarnished her name. So when you look back at that time in the 90s when Bobby Brown was just out there fucking getting arrested every 13 seconds, which we'll talk about in a minute, he was doing that self-destructive bullshit because he knew how much it ruined her name too. 
Bobby Brown liked that Whitney Houston's name was being drugged through the fucking rocks with him because it meant she wasn't better than him. And that is why I can't fuck with Bobby Brown. (laughs) I was glamored, to use a true blood term, by Bobby Brown a couple weeks ago. And I was like, oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely probably would have fucked Bobby in the 80s for sure. Definitely would have trusted him with my credit cards for sure. Like, absolutely. Bobby would have ruined my life. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Bobby Brown is a short little insecure fucker. And I would have done everything in my power to make him feel like a short, insecure fucker. Can you imagine hearing Bobby Brown tell Whitney Houston that she's a has-been and calling her baldy and all this shit? I would have choked him. I would have literally choked him. Since Bobby Brown knew that post-bodyguard, because let's talk about this for a second. Before the bodyguard, you could at least say, I mean, Bobby was a Grammy-winning, American Music Award-winning, you know, amazing recording artist who had, you know, done all the things, whatever. And Whitney Houston was a really accomplished artist with a bunch of successful hits and whatever. You know, they were like two people who kind of made sense in some way, like in theory, I guess. But then post Bodyguard, Bobby obviously knew that he was never going to be able to achieve that level of, of success, given where he was publicly at that point. So he was like, you know what, if I'm going down, bitch, you're coming down too, and I'm going to level us the only way I know how, which is to go out and do a bunch of fuck shit and uh, make sure everybody knows that you support me and that I run you and that I'm in charge of you and that you come from my ribs or whatever because you're my wife and I'm 5'3". Kevin Amons, who wrote a biography on Whitney's life, talked about how much more important it was for the people in her camp to point blame than to help her. And the easiest person, of course, for them to point blame at was always Robin, duh, because they all collectively hated Robin together. So it was just easy. Her brothers were actively doing everything they could to get her high. Every step she fucking took, no matter what country she was in, they were putting crack in their fucking buttholes to make sure that Whitney could get high all the time Bobby was emotionally abusive and physically abusive as well I mean he had gotten to a point where he was beating the shit out of her but it's almost like too easy to blame Bobby right like it's like duh of course Bobby's an asshole but that's just Bobby Robin on the other hand is way easier to villainize and the irony is that she and Whitney's bodyguard were probably two of the only people that she knew who were actively trying to keep her sober. And that does not include her parents. He literally says Sissy Houston did everything she could to try and destroy Robin. Every opportunity she had, anything she could twist or spin to make Robin look bad to Whitney, she took it because Robin was a big fat lesbian was going to burn in hell. So she hated her no matter what. And imagine hating, imagine being such a narcissistic piece of shit that you would rather your daughter die than have a friendship with somebody who you deem 
I, I guess to be like the antichrist because she's gay, but it's fine that your sons are shoving drugs down her fucking throat. It's just, there's no point in even trying to make sense of it. Can you also imagine what that felt like for Robin? I don't even know if we've talked about this yet, but it's like, think about how Robin felt. She sticks around because she knows if she leaves, her best friend since childhood will die a horrendous death. It's not even a question. She's going to die if she's left to her own devices. So she exists in this world where everybody hates her to the point that they all openly talk about and contemplate finding people to cause her physical harm. And you know what? I'm just going to say it. And this is obviously alleged, but I'm just going to say it. If they were willing to hire somebody and they're willing to talk about it and sort of laugh about it, if they were willing to hire somebody to shatter Robin's kneecaps, they definitely, in my opinion, probably were going to hire somebody to kill her at some point. I can't imagine that her dad didn't contemplate just having somebody kill her. Honestly, they hated her so much. And they laugh and think it's funny that they were going to hire somebody to shatter her knees because she was gay. It's just crazy. There's also multiple people who say, you know, that she would go through these periods of not talking to her family in order to kind of separate herself from the madness, from people needing money and feeding her drugs and stealing from her and manipulating her and trying to tarnish her relationship with her friend. So she would not talk to her mom or her brothers for months sometimes. And instead of having any morsel of like, you know, humility or self-reflection, they would be angry at Robin or Bobby for making Whitney not talk to them, never realizing that they were in fact the reason Whitney wasn't talking to them. Mind you, at the same time, Bobby is on this like self-destructive bender and being arrested literally every week. As I mentioned before, he's at a point where he's doing everything he can to sort of tarnish their names together because he feels like he has nothing to lose. And uh, yeah, he has some sexual assault cases filed against him for exposing himself to female employees. He was giving them the old Louis C.K. He was arrested for battery after some domestic situation with Whitney. He had drunk driving charges, possession of narcotics, Um, He had a woman or he had several women actually showing up at their house and, you know, claiming that he was the father of their children, which literally he probably was. Um, He was arrested for kicking a security guard. He beat up some guy at a nightclub so bad that the guy almost died. And when they handcuffed him, he urinated all over the backseat of the cop car and then carved like obscenities into the seats I don't know with what and I don't know how he contorted his little body but he did it and one of the things her personal assistant mentioned that I thought was super interesting about their relationship was this sort of strange love that they had for each other this strange type of affection that they had and this is something that I think given what we've talked about so far I guess it shouldn't come as a surprise But their love was more of like a codependent obsession than a traditional love. And the only way that I could really describe it 
is dope sick. They had dope sick love. And Liz Bentley is one of like six people who knows what I'm talking about when I reference that, but they were dope sick love. Uh, by the way, Dope Sick Love is a documentary on HBO that came out, I want to say it was like in the early 2000s or late 90s. I think it was the early 2000s. And it's about these uh, these couples that live in New York City and they're drug addicts. And it's about their everyday life of like scoring drugs, where to use drugs in New York City, what alleyways to go to, what doorways to shoot up in, places to have sex, ways to get money, good, you know, trash cans to dig through you know, it shows them fighting in the streets with each other, and just, I mean, it's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen in my life, and it's just given me, I mean, the greatest thing that it gave me was the expression dope sick love, because there are some relationships that you could only describe that way, and Whitney and Bobby in, like, 1996, 1997 can only be described as dope sick love. Whitney had also taken her vows so serious when she got married she was dead set on not wanting to become her parents even though she was being cheated on and lied to and beaten up and used by this man on a constant basis a divorce would be a a betrayal to god as i mentioned before and the longer she stayed the deeper she sank into this fucked up obsession with this man this obsession with trying to make this man feel secure enough to be nice to her, which is so sad. And I guess the one thing that I will say in defense of Sissy Houston is that I think the fear of Whitney removing herself from her mother's life or removing her mother from her own life, whatever, um, I think that that fear was so intense that she let a lot of things go on. I think she was afraid of Whitney in many ways. And, you know, at a certain point, it's like Whitney is uber rich. She's uber, uber, she's uber powerful and she's uber successful. So she can do whatever the fuck she wants and she can make anything happen that she wants to happen. You know what I mean? And she would, like I said, go through these periods of not speaking to her mom as if she didn't exist. So she wouldn't be allowed, you know, past the gate of her home. She wouldn't answer her calls. She would be, you know, removed from the guest list, uh, you know, to be able to come backstage at shows. It was literally as if she didn't exist. And plus she had that period when she was a young girl of moving in with Robin and separating herself from her family because she found out that her mom had cheated which I also think probably played a really big part in why she hated Robin because Robin was the person that she ran to to protect her from her family. And, you know, for a woman like Sissy Houston, I think that leads to resentments. Do you remember a couple weeks ago when I mentioned that Bobby Brown was involved in a shooting? Well, that's how we're going to end the episode this week because it's what we deserve this week, apparently. In September of 1995, Bobby paid a visit to his old neighborhood to see his sister, who was newly engaged to a man named Stephen Seeley. And that night, Bobby and Stephen went to a nightclub near Orchard Park, where he grew up. And uh, he spent the evening signing autographs and having people just sort of fawn over him and, you know, letting women touch his abs and shit. I'm sure he was fucking a bunch of girls in this, like, shitty little bar. 
And when they went to leave, a man jumped out and shot Stephen three times in the face and chest and grabbed the chain from around his neck and ran into the projects never to be seen again. I think the guy was arrested, though. And this happened while they were, I guess, sitting outside, you know, Whitney's cream colored Bentley that Bobby stupidly decided to drive into the projects during peak 90s gang war shit. So people started shooting from both sides of where they were standing and 12 bullets went through Whitney's car. Um, a witness told the Spokesman Review in 1995, a man of that caliber in that rinky-dinky club, it just doesn't make sense to me, said Jimmy Young, an emergency medical technician. People are jealous. They envy him. He shouldn't have come around showing off. In, de- in December of 1996, Whitney starred in the Penny Marshall directed The Preacher's Wife. Oh, we're, hitting, we're actually ending on a Christian note, which is good. Uh, starring Denzel Washington, Jennifer Lewis, and Loretta Devine. The Preacher's Wife is uh, a remake of a 1947 Cary Grant film, The Bishop's Wife. But I've got to tell you, I didn't know for a very long time that Penny Marshall directed The Preacher's Wife. I was a little bit shook by that. I was. Because I don't take that movie serious, I guess, because it's a little bit too Christian for me. It's a lot. But I think I might give it another chance because... People have a lot of really good things to say about Whitney's performance. Um, The movie wasn't well-reviewed. It's got a pretty shitty score on Rotten Tomatoes. It doesn't really have a high IMDb rating. But Whitney's performance in the movie was, like, raved about. And a lot of people say that it's her best performance to date. Um, And it's also really sad because it's one of those projects that Whitney took on because she was broke. And she had a classroom of drug addicts attached to her payroll, you know, and their only discernible skill was being related or connected to Whitney Houston. They were all skillless, talentless people who did nothing but leech off of this woman. The cousin of the brother of the sister-in-law of the friend who knows the doorman who worked with Whitney. These are the people that are being paid to just do drugs around her, I guess. Um, We're going to end it on that note. We are an hour in. Perfect. That was a little... This was a lot for me. I'm not going to lie. This was a lot. I really want to stop talking. <laughs> I love you guys. Um, I will see you next week. And next week is even darker and more sad. So if that's what you're into, you're in for a treat. I love you. I hope that you enjoyed this uh, episode. Can you tell that I'm done? <laughs> Can you tell I want to be done talking? Bye. Thank you for listening to Dunzo. This podcast is a part of the Solid Listen Network. Please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. Also be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash solidlisten for exclusive content. You can follow me on Twitter at Troy McGee, and you can follow the podcast on all forms of social media at DunzoPod. That's D-U-N-Z-O. Thank you to executive producer Molly McAleer and coordinating producer Nicole Matthew. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook Games.